Welcome to the Building Books Podcast. I'm Glenn Yeffitz, publisher of Ben Bella Books, and on this podcast, we will talk about ideas, authors, and how publishing really works. Well, good morning. I am thrilled this morning to welcome the brilliant Gwen Cooper. Gwen is the author of four books, including one of the most successful cat memoirs of all time, the breakthrough bestseller Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat. Gwen is not only a fantastic writer, but an impressive and creative marketer as well. So I feel very privileged that we will be publishing her next two books, My Life in a Cat House and Homer and the Holiday Miracle. Welcome, Gwen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, you know, this podcast, we talk a lot about books and upcoming books. We also talk about the writer's life. And you've had an amazing career. So I'd love to just start at the beginning of how you decide when and how you decided to become a writer. This feels very, tell us about your career, Slugger. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, you know, I honestly don't remember a time where I didn't want to write. Uh, I think, you know, is the first time that I, as a very young child, realized that not only did books exist, but there were people who wrote them. As soon as I had that epiphany, I, I aspired to be one of those people. I majored in creative writing in college, and I actually ended up going into marketing communications, first in nonprofit and then in the private sector. Actually, so my, my story of how I decided to become a writer was I was working at Rolling Stone magazine in the marketing department, and we had a new marketing director came in, and he gave everybody in the marketing department a writing assignment, uh, no matter what your job description was. And it was for a hypothetical ad campaign, marketing campaign for the magazine. And so, uh, you know, when, we, when I turned mine in, the new CMO was very impressed. He brought it upstairs. He brought it to Jan Wenner, who was very impressed and decreed that from then on, I and I alone would write all of the marketing copy for Rolling Stone. And Wow. Yes. And, and even though it was just marketing copy, I was thinking, this is Jan Wenner. You know, this is, this, is the, the, this is the publisher who has broken many renowned and famous authors and, and first introduced them to the public. And if he is impre- this impressed with my marketing copy, perhaps I should be applying my talents elsewhere. And here we are today. Now, did you go through the usual process of putting together a draft and finding an agent and all that? Yeah. So I continued to work full time at Wenner Media for the next year and a half. And I wrote my manuscript and I was simultaneously looking for an agent. I did it purely over the transom, you know, the old fashioned way. Uh, When people write to me today and they say, you know, how do you find an agent? How do you become a writer? I always tell them I literally started out by Googling how to find literary. And we we truly, we live in an age where where of instant information, of of miracles and wonders. I read a lot of articles and I bought some books and and learned how to write pitch letters and what they should say and how you should decide who to send them to and the kind of research you were supposed to do. And while I was writing, I was simultaneously pitching. I had like at any given time, I had five pitch letters out. And as soon as a rejection would come back, I'd stuff the next one in the envelope and, and send it back out. And so by the time I finished the manuscript, I, I had a few agents who wanted to look at the manuscripts and, and yeah, found my first agent, sold my first book. And, and again, I feel like I keep ending sentences this way. Here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Now, um, so, so that first, pro, uh, that first publication where you were, you know, an unknown writer had this book out, you know, what did that feel like? It's interesting, right? Because I mean, obviously, a lot of what you read is will be people telling you that it's essentially impossible for an unpublished author, to, an unpublished writer to get a book deal. When I say unpublished, I mean, I hadn't even really written like magazine articles 
or op-ed pieces or, or anything, short stories, uh, nothing of that nature. I think you have to just be really stubborn. I know you didn't exactly ask an advice question, but what the experience was for me, it was a lot of, I, you know, I don't care. I can do this or I can't. I think I can. I never advocate like sort of blindly arrogant self-confidence. I think at a certain point, if, if the entirety of the publishing industry is telling you that you should not be published, that is something you should begin to consider. But the sort of generalities, it's really tough if you don't know somebody. It's really tough if you if they haven't if nobody has come to you saying we'd like to see a book. It's really tough if you don't already have a list of credits. You know, it's, it's really tough or nearly impossible. I think are the kinds of things that you should feel free to disregard if you are confident in what you're doing and in your ability to convey your skill and enthusiasm to others. Right. And, you know, it's possible to get a lot of rejections because your manuscript isn't very good. But it's also very possible to have a fantastic manuscript and get tons of rejections, as we've seen, you know, through like, you know, everybody from Harry Potter to Gone with the Wind had many rejections and then they ultimately got accepted. Well, I mean, absolutely. And I should backtrack a little bit and say when I say the entirety of the publishing industry, I don't necessarily mean if you've gotten a lot of rejections, because that really, really is part of the job is getting rejections. Uh, I've never heard of anybody no matter how successful they are, who does not have a stack of rejection letters and a whole bunch of rejection stories to go with them. You know, but I have in in writing workshops, I've met people who for five years have been in a constant state of sending out queries and and getting rejections. I think at a certain point when when you hit, you know, a point where you're, you're, you're sort of marking annual anniversaries, if it's not the writing, then it's definitely your approach and it's something to reconsider. Now, your second, now was Homer's Odyssey your second book? It was my second book, yes. As we all know, that was a phenomenal success, uh, hitting the New York Times list over and over again over a period of years, if I remember. But I feel like, especially when reading your book, How I Learned About That, We're Bringing Out Now, My Life in a Cat House, it seems like you went into that writing very strategically. Do you mean the writing process itself or, or the process of deciding, I mean, like, to, deciding to write about Homer and deciding to do, you know, a cat book when your first book was more was a novel and do, but yes. doing a sort of a memoir? Now, I'm sure it was from the heart, but at the same time, I, it sounded like there was a bit of strategy there as well. I can't pretend that I don't have a background in marketing and that it's not and, and that the possibility of, of a commercial angle for my work never comes into play because obviously it does. So with Homer's Odyssey, it was really sort of a left brain, right brain, a perfect marriage of the left brain and the right brain. Because of my marketing background, I had a wealth of information at my disposal about the number of cat owners in America, how many cats they have, where they live, what their disposable income is, how many books there are out there for them, how many books this audience buys, whether about cats or other subjects in any given year. And I felt that because there were so many cat lovers and so few cat books, that that, just from a marketing perspective, represents a a clear market opportunity. By the same token, I would not have done, you know, you can't sell anything to anyone, no matter how underserved a market is, if you don't have a good product that they're going to, to like or hopefully love. I also simultaneously really had the feeling that this was just a great story you know, about this, this amazing blind cat and the, the heroic things that he had done and the kind of story that I, as an animal lover, would love. And I felt that, that I could, you know, make it, build a good narrative out of it. And so if I hadn't had that sort of emotional, you know, I, I just believe in the story feeling, then all of the marketing stuff would not have mattered. By the same token, 
if I'm being honest, if I just felt that I had a wonderful story to tell, but didn't necessarily think it was going to appeal to anybody, I don't know that I would have gone forward. So it was really the marriage of the two. So I love that you're saying that, Gwen, because I think it's so wise. I mean, there's a big emphasis now in publishing on platform. Everyone needs to have a big platform. And I see so many things with a big platform, but they don't have a quality book. And it's almost like the the, the the quality of the book became the least important aspect of getting a book deal. And really, in the end, the reason so many people bought this book was because so many people loved the book. And the reason so many people loved the book was because the book was fantastic. And you can't get away from that. The marketing, you know, you're pushing a string if you've got a weak book, but a great platform. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's something, and, and certainly not just in publishing, but but absolutely that that is often overlooked. You know, there's a lot of uh, focus on, and and I understand it. It's right. We it's it's very difficult, especially in an era of vanishing book sections and newspapers, and and you know, sort of the industry platforms for books, and so there is a lot of emphasis on on the marketing aspect and how you can reach people. But really, the first rule of marketing is people have to like the products. It really is that simple. And because you're not going to sell anything to anyone if, if they don't like it. I thank you for your very kind words about Homer's Odyssey. But, you know, it was really the case when I sat down to write that that really did come from the heart. It was the great instances as a person in marketing where you are your target audience. You know, I, I am passionate in my love for for animals. And um, and, and I'm glad that that was conveyed to to my readers. You know, when you came out, when your agent was pitching Homer's Odyssey, were the publishers like, oh, there's so many cat readers and there's so few cat books, we're dying to have this, or did they not get it? No, my stars now. <laughs> um, <laughs> my goodness, no. We, we got a lot of rejections for Homer's Odyssey. Probably, I, I guess my personal favorite was when we would hear that Homer was not special enough. You know, so Homer was not just fine. He had no eyes. He was an eyeless cat. And in the original proposal, the, the subtitle, what was Tales of an Eyeless Wonder Cat. So like a lot of the life and love, none of that was in there. And instead of saying blind, I said eyeless. And so when I would hear that Homer wasn't special enough, my feeling was I always like, I mean, I don't know. When I tell people at cocktail parties that I have a cat with no eyes, it usually arrests their attention for, for at least <laughs> a moment. They're like, wait, no eyes? And I was like, does he need to have no eyes and, and juggle, you know, does he, does he <laughs> need to have no eyes and, and also be a tap dancer? Like, like what, what is the definition of special here? I mean, he, he also see, you know, he chased a burglar out of my apart out of my bedroom in the middle of the night one night. So he, I mean, there was this whole story where he literally saved my life. And I was like, I don't know what you're looking for in the way of special, if not a blind, heroic, life-saving cat. But okay, okay. You cook a ten course. Meal. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like on the special skill section on his resume, fluent in French. You know, like that frog in the those old Warner Brothers cartoons who who could sing. Anyway, uh, right, so right. so we we heard that we heard that you know a lot. We heard a lot of the Catch Twenty Two logic of there. Are, you know, where, where I felt that the lack of of cat books represented a market opportunity. We heard quite a bit that. There were no cat books because cat people didn't want them. And, and so my argument is always, well, how do you know they don't want them if those books are not there? And, uh, you know, so really it was a sort of circular logic. I, I also heard that, and, and this is actually one of the titles in my, my forthcoming book, one of the chapter titles, Cat Lovers Don't Read Books, which always struck me as, as sort of 
particularly odd observation insofar as isn't that sort of the, the stereotype of, of the, the socially maladjusted cat lady who's at home alone due to her lack of social skills and and it's not something i believe but if we're going to be trafficking in baseless stereotypes so and, yeah so there was a lot you know ultimately obviously the, the book found a home but it was not in the, it was not the hardest path but it was not the easiest path I mean, there's so much groupthink, especially with the big New York publishers, where it just, you know, it's just, I guess it's inevitable. You're trying to chase. It's so hard to predict what books are going to sell. And so you're either led by, well, there's a lot of other books out there. Maybe there's too many, so we won't do that. Or there aren't any books, so probably nobody wants. Yeah, it's a real small, I guess, needle that you're trying to thread there. But I remember reading about uh, Judith Regan, who, you know, did the made a fortune with these wrestling books. And the belief in the industry was, you know, these wrestling middle of the country people don't know how to read or would never read a book. And of course, they sold, you know, quite a few of those books. Yes. And so it's always nice to get out of the group thing. Yes, absolutely. Hey, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's never uh, it's never a pack of people, right, who accomplished the really big things. It's, it's always somebody who's thinking a little bit outside of the box or a little bit differently. You built an, um, really a very impressive Facebook and social media platform in connection with your writing. What was the chicken and what was the egg? Was Homer's, did Homer's Odyssey success lead to a huge platform or did that platform drive the success or how did it work? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, was, I was actually just, just interviewed on this very subject for a Canadian cat documentary yesterday. So, you know, it's a documentary about famous, famous cats on the internet and you know, Homer's Odyssey came out when famous cats were not really a thing. They, you know, there, there was no grumpy cat. There was no little bub. Everyone knew maybe who, who Felix the cat was and, and the fancy piece version and, and, you know, Hello Kitty. Now, was Dewey, was Dewey the library cat out at that yes, point? Yes, Dewey the library cat was out. And so I would say in, in terms of famous cats, he was definitely, you know, probably the only living cat who, who was, you know, what we'd call famous. But he did not have necessarily social media. He wasn't internet famous, you know, and, and again, this was sort of before the entire phenomenon of, of pets on social media when Dewey came out. Um, you know, Dewey w- was famous through the, what we think of as the more traditional ways. He, there were newspaper articles, there were TV stories, TV news stories, things right. like that. So definitely the success of Homer's Odyssey came first. About a year and change after the book's publication, I started a Facebook page for Homer which I was initially resistant to doing, again, because at the time, it ju- and this is only a few years ago, which it's just amazing how rapidly this has all changed. But at the time, it just felt weird to have a, a Facebook page for your cat. But I started one. At the time of his death, it had amassed 13,000 followers, which struck me as a hugely and a huge and insane number of people to be following a cat online. And then after his death was really... When, I mean, across all platforms on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, the community of people who had read the book and, and loved him coalesced online in, in, in these online communities. And now we have something like 890,000 followers on Facebook and another 30 or 40,000 on Instagram and Twitter. I mean, the Instagram account is only four months old and we're coming up on 20,000 followers. And yeah, it's it's just been a really, really interesting phenomenon to observe in the last, you know, let's say five, six years, how that's all developed. Wow. And so a lot of that happens post the, the really the success, like the success of the book drove that success of the social media. Yes, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, and, and I would say Homer's passing also was, was a big impetus for the social media. You know, again, there were so many people who had been so, who had loved his story and, and were so affected by his life and, and who came together following his death. Now, you had this very innovative idea that we're pursuing now, this uh, online Curl Up with a Cattail series. Talk, tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so what happened was, I, you know, so I have now this huge social media community, which is wonderful and it's great. Um, by the same token, as, as you know, you know, social media moves very quickly, whereas the publishing industry does not. Um, I mean, even when it's moving quickly, you're looking at, let's say, two to three years lag time between books. And that's just the nature of the business. That's not at all a criticism. It's it's good. I mean, it takes a while to write a good book and to have someone edit it and to make the changes. I think it's good that it's an intensive and time-consuming process. But in the meantime, you have the social media community that's, you know, at least in my case, had built up around the cats. And they want to know what the cats are doing. And they want fresh material about the cats on a fairly regular basis. A YouTuber can put up two or three new videos a week and an Instagrammer can put up two or three photos a day. And I do those things. But first and foremost, I'm a writer and, and it's hard to to keep. I mean, you, you certainly can't match the pace of two or three times a day. And, and so that was how I came up with the idea of Curl Up with a Cat Tail, which is a monthly e-short story subscription series. And so people, readers um, subscribe to pay a one time subscription fee. And then for the, you know, the first week of every month for the following year, they get a new story, 30 to 50 pages, you know, usually between eight and 10,000 words. And some of the stories go back a little further. They, they're about the first cats I, I adopted before Homer. Um, some of the stories are much more contemporary and they're things that are happening in our lives right now. My feeling was that I wanted people to, I wanted to find a way through my writing to keep people who felt invested in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis to feel like they were getting not just pictures, but a writing update on our lives on a regular basis. That's great. And tell people if they want to find those, where would they go? That's right. I'm, I'm not even thinking about plugging. I'm, I'm treating this on a much more professional level, but it's, uh, I'm not shamelessly self-promoting like we, I should we be. We can plug a little we bit. We can plug we a can little. Plug yes. A little. Uh, my, my bad. Um, so it's a gwencooper.com slash cattails and that's c-a-t-t-a-l-e-s gwencooper.com slash cattails and you can learn more about the curl up of the cattail series uh see some of the stories that we've published so far you can also sign up for my mailing list and and download a free story if, if you're on the fence and and you're not entirely sure about this sketchy sounding newfangled monthly short story series you can see what it's all about and it's been going really well so far and and the readers love it it's great. I hear, you know, every day on my Facebook page, somebody will post that it's just great to have the stories to look forward to every month. And, you know, that things of that nature, they, they really like getting these monthly dispatches sort of in between longer books. No, I think it's great. And, you know, you were very kind about the lengthiness of the publishing process. But, you know, as a publisher, it's frustrating to me you know, in a world where everything is moving so fast that, you know, it takes us a year to put out a book from the time, you know, the person submits a manuscript and it's always possible to do it faster, but to do it right, the industry standards and getting in the bookstores and all that stuff sort of forces that pace on you. And what I love about this sort of experiment we're doing with you is we get to release the stories as you write them. We, we do a thorough editing on them before we release them. And then we can collect them in a book for people who want a more, you know, substantial read. And a number of the stories coming together is going to be the, the book that we're bringing out, My Life in a Cat House. 
Yeah, I feel here that I should really give a shout out to my long suffering editor, Leah Wilson, who I just keep constantly busy. <laughs> and um, because really, we are sort of in a constant state of putting one story to bed or, or working on the next one. And I find myself when I'm writing, trying very, very hard to make her job as easy as possible. You know, I, I like we're, we're sort of in a rhythm now where, all right, this is the kind of thing Lee is going to object to. And I want to save her the time of having to note it or, or rewrite <laughs> it or, or, you know, ask a question like, is this really what the cat, you know, is this really what you want to say here? And because God bless her, she is fantastic. She really is a phenomenal editor. And I feel sort of like we're in this abusive codependency of my <laughs> of my making. And um, so I, I really do want to give her some love here, too. Oh, well, thank you, Gwen. Uh, you know, Leah Wilson's our editor-in-chief here at Bambella, and she is, we've been working together, oh boy, over 15 years. And uh, she is, I think of her, and I'm, I say it all the time, she's like our secret weapon. I mean, she just you know, such a good editor, but also so good at, it's not just about the words. It's also about the feelings and the emotions and, and getting those relationships right that allow a good editorial process. So thank you. Yeah, no, Leah's great. Leah, you know, she, she, I would say she's macro and micro, you know, she is definitely the person who will pull apart every comma, verb tense, you know, noun case and, and so on and so forth, but who also takes a real holistic and bird's eye view of, of the, the feeling throughout a story, the rises and falls, what, what it's trying to say, and will make suggestions that never make me feel like she's, you know, trying to insert her own ideas or, or change, change my voice, uh, which is a thing that writers say. And, and I always feel sort of pretentious when I say it, but, but it's true. It's, it, it always feels like my no, story, the better. Yeah. No. And the editor should maintain the voice you know, that's part of the value, you know, that's part of what we're uh, buying the book for because we've, we love the voice. So that, that's, I feel like we should stop plugging um, Leah now because somebody might listen to this yes. and try to hire her and, and then we would both be incredibly miserable. So. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're using her pseudonym. So right. No one will know who she really is. <laughs> Shmia, Shmia is the... <laughs> now for my life in a cat house, you know, I just want to say, I just finished it a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, I'm the, I mean, I will confess, I am the last person who would pick up a cat book. Sure. Um, how, however, I'm divorced now 10 plus years, but my ex-wife and I had four cats for years. And they were never my cats. They were her cats, but I enjoyed having them around, you know, and then I kind of missed them a bit when I left and then, but I kind of forgot about it, but reading this book and which is so well-written and so captures just the pleasure and the personality of what it's like to live with some felines really made me nostalgic for those days when we had the cats. So anyway, I just wanted to say kudos for that. Well, I, I thank you. I feel like praise from my publishers is probably somewhat better than praise from my mother, <laughs> but maybe not, maybe not that much more trustworthy. My mom says the stories are great. She loves my writing style. I, I thank you. I, I am also sorry to have to inform you that your cats never thought about you again when you walked out that door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe that. <laughs> if if they if they were your ex wife's cats, they were like, "Thank God that guy's gone." <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty much right. I think that's pretty much right. <laughs> so now, tell us about Homer and the Holiday Miracle. That's sort of a a mini, like I guess a novella, but it's you know it's a true story, and it's releasing it for the holidays, coming out at the same time um, 
uh, end of October as my life in a cat house. Tell us a little bit about that, that book. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, even novella is being really generous. It's, it's a short story and it's, uh, you know, sort of a, like a standalone gift book. And, and it's, it's kind of like the ideas for it to be a stocking stuffer. So initially I wrote that last year as a free giveaway. And that was for just the people who've been following us on social media and my mailing list. And it was a little while since I'd written anything about Homer and it was a, a thank you to them. Um, and then they really loved it. And and when you and I discussed it, we expanded it. We, we made it better. I mean, it definitely is much better than it was in, in its initial written form and, and longer and, and more festive. Um, but, you know, it was just a great story. And, and really, the nutshell, you know, it's not a fictional story. It's not like Homer leads Santa's sleigh with his magical blind superpowers <laughs> or, or anything like that. Um, what happened in... December of 2012, and it was two weeks before Christmas, was Homer had a minor fainting episode. I brought him to the animal hospital. The ordeal of that is its own whole story because Homer, even though I brought him in unconscious, he was blind and weighed four pounds and was literally sick to death, held off the entire veterinary hospital staff for an hour. And, <laughs> and then they banned him for life. <laughs> and, and this was a hospital I cannot even tell you. Like they practically had a Gwen Cooper Memorial Wing built onto that hospital. It, my my cats my cats had, had been treated there for many years. We had certainly spent quite a bit of money, and they were like, "We don't care. Just you know, take this wretched cat out of here. Never bring him back." Homer was a difficult patient to say the least. So anyway, what happened was he he came in. He had liver values that were fifteen hundred percent higher than what is normal for a cat. And what that means is that the level of toxins in his blood that the liver would normally filter out are 15, 1,500% higher than they were supposed to be. The phrase wow. that the doctor used in discussing his blood work with me the next day was incompatible with life. His numbers were incompatible with life, which is a very fancy way of saying this cat should be dead already and do not expect him to live longer. And they gave me a two-week course of treatment for him and, and told me to pretty much to expect that within two weeks or less, uh, he would not be with us. And, and again, Homer had emphatically ruled out any more aggressive medical care, um, any hospitalization or anything else we might've considered doing for him. So we brought him home and, and prepared to, you know, to sell, I mean, really to celebrate Christmas with his passing, um, which is a very, a very unhappy thought. And, uh, you know, I guess to make a long story short and spoiler alert, but he, he ended up living for another year without treatment and sort of in defiance of of all medical logic as to how this cat could even pick wow. his head up, you know, much less. Um, and there's some great parts in the story where, you know, the, the vet is calling me and a homer. I mean, he was like running, tearing around the apartment, bothering the kittens, stealing their toys, stealing our food, you know, getting into all the kind of trouble with the holiday decorations that he always did. And the vet called me like, he's probably experiencing some discomfort right now. We should talk about what we can do to make him feel more comfortable. And, you know, this is his Homer is like, you know, taking the chicken breast off my <laughs> lunch plate and run off into the bed. And like, it doesn't, it doesn't really seem uncomfortable. So that's where the story was. And I, I think that most animal lovers, you know, anyone who's had animals for a long enough period of time has these kinds of stories, you know, the things that are not supposed to happen and not supposed to be possible and the many ways in which animals surprise us. I actually saw for the first time today, uh, the Daily Mail has a, a Facebook uh, video series called We Don't Deserve Animals. And, uh, you know, it's these incredible stories, these incredible things that, that animals do. And yeah, and this was really one of them. Homer, uh, Homer showed everybody. Wow. And you've always donated some of your royalties to charities. Tell me a little bit about <laughs> You know, Homer, obviously, because he's a special needs cat and because he, you know, the way that I came to adopt him, 
to make a very long story short, was that he was in danger of being euthanized because nobody wanted to take him. You know, it's not really something that I'd foreseen when I published the book, but Homer was really embraced by the rescue community. He, he really became sort of a poster child for not even just animal rescue, but for those really tough cases, you know, the, the cases that really break the hearts of people who work in rescue. These animals who they, they know just have these wonderful personalities and are so loving, but who don't get a chance because they are different or, or quote unquote undesirable in some way. And when I was first hearing a lot of rejections from Homer's Odyssey, I had an idea that I wanted to see how many people in America lived with blind cats. I thought maybe that might help overcome some of the rejections, you know, the objections that we were hearing from publishers. Maybe if there was this whole groundswell of people with blind cats who might be a potential audience. So I ended up in touch with Blind Cat Rescue and Sanctuary in North Carolina, currently in the path of Hurricane Florence, I'm very sorry to say. And they are one of, yeah, oh, only wow. two shelters in the U.S., who are specifically devoted to, to rescuing blind cats and kittens exclusively. And, and I had this really great pep talk um, with the executive director, who, who I'd never spoken with before. I just found her via Google, and we, you know, I called her, and we ended up talking. And so since then, you know, I donate 10% of all my royalties from Homer's Odyssey to organizations that serve abusive men and, and disabled animals. I was delighted to be able to give a $10,000 check from um, Homer's first week royalties and paperback to Blind Cat Rescue and Sanctuary uh, back in 2010. And Homer's community has done, you know, again, the, uh, these are people who are passionate about animals and, and also have a soft spot for rescue animals, um, particularly if they're following Homer and me. And so we, we've raised half a million dollars in small donations um, over the last five years to, to donate to organizations around the world, both to su support their ongoing work and also during catastrophes like Hurricane Harvey last year, um, the, the earthquake in Nepal, the tsunami in Japan, and, and things of that nature. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Can you talk a little bit about your writing process? Do you write every day? Well, when I'm on a deadline, I do. You know, I'm definitely not a person who, in between books or projects, makes a point of writing every day. Although I usually jot down, I now, now that I have a monthly series, I am always in a constant state of at least taking notes on things that my cats are doing that I think might be fodder for a story. I think it's really, you know, if we're, if we're talking the process and, and which I guess sort of inevitably leads to advice, you know, for other writers, I would say that it's really important. I think the most important thing is figuring out if you're a day person or a night person and, and being honest with that. And if you are a morning person, you should plan on creating the longest possible morning. And if you're a night person, you should plan on creating the longest possible night. But I'm a more of a morning person. I get up at 4.30. I'm usually at the computer at 5. And it's great to have those quiet hours from, let's say, 5 to 9 before anyone is, is you know, before the emails start coming in and the phone calls start coming in and, and the world starts bothering me, distracting me from the writing I honestly, I think carving out silence is really the best friend of a writer and distractions are the worst enemy. And so I, I think the most important thing a writer can do in terms of their process, it's not just writing every day, but carving out as many distraction-free hours for yourself as you can. And, and even maybe pushing yourself a little bit until you get into that rhythm. It was not easy to come to a point where I get up between 4.30 and 5. But I do now, and it's probably the best thing I ever did for my writing. Boy, that's great. And that's interesting. that makes a lot of sense. But it, it, it's almost like the world has gotten where it's harder to block out that time. There's so many ways you can get Well, especially, you know, look, uh, Homer is a, you know, is a cat with, with a large Internet following and not every I mean, that's a 
a somewhat unique position to be in as a writer, but every writer has the responsibility now of, of keeping up on social media. You want to be active on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. You want to be where your readers are. You want to be in conversations with them. That is how, I mean, that's a big part of how you sell books. And it's amazing that authors have those tools. But the flip side is they there are also distractions and they sort of demand a certain amount of immediacy. You know, to, I mean, you can post something in the morning and then check in on it eight hours later, but then you lose the chance for it to sort of create the momentum that your input will give it over the course of the day. And so that's why I really feel that there are those times where social media is as quiet as it's going to be in the 24-hour cycle, um, usually early in the morning or late at night. And again, and that's just you communicating with readers, and that's before you get to your editor communicating with you or, or you know, talking to your marketing partner, the, the other things right. that you have to do as a, as a business person in addition to being a writer, you know, like any other job. And yeah, it's finding the, the quiet hours, uh, I think, is really key and, and more difficult than it was even 10 years ago, but certainly essential. Any thoughts on what writers could do better from a marketing point of view? What I find has really helped me is really maintaining that. I mean, you know, I was talking before about Leah being a, a sort of macro and also micro editor. And I would say that you have to sort of take the same approach with, with your readership. You want to do things that are going to reach as many people as possible whether that's an event, whether that is, you know, starting some sort of campaign where you're trying to get people to share things on social media or putting up, you know, posts that you think will be entertaining to your followers and hope will go viral. I am also in daily one-on-one -on -one conversations with my readers. Obviously not all of them, because that would be huge. But, but honestly, <laughs> as many as contact me directly, they email me through my website, they, they private message me through Facebook, they, they leave comments on my Instagram posts. As many of them as I and I, you know, I'm there and as many of them as I can sort of scoop up. I mean, there are, there are definitely comments and messages that, that just float by. They come on a particularly busy day, whatever the case may be. I respond to every reader email. I respond to every reader comment or private message on Facebook. I put up a September 11th post yesterday that got too many comments for me to respond individually. And then I will usually, but I make a point of at least liking, you know, each one. You really want to dig in there and forge a personal connection. And it's a lot of work, but I believe it paid. that's how you build loyalty, I think, among your fans is for them to feel that they have a vested interest in, in you and, and that you have a vested interest in them and that it extends beyond your, you know, it's not just when you're trying to get them to buy a book, but it's in the years in between those books coming out and you're still there for them. And again, you know, some of that is the particular... It, just to, you know, to, I'm not trying to, to scare anybody off of even the idea of becoming an author. You know, I write memoirs, and especially when you're writing about animals, which is already a very emotional and personal subject for a lot of people. They, they feel a strong emotional connection. And when you write a memoir, it really makes people feel like they know you and not just someone who's writing a book. So the idea of the forging those one-on-one -on -one relationships has a little bit more urgency or, or, or you know, applicability, let's say, if, if you're writing nonfiction, you're writing memoir, something like that. But having said that, I, you know, I think that, um, yeah, you, you know, one of the best, mar it's, it's great to have marketing campaigns that, that hit a lot of people uh, at the same time. And, and that's certainly something you need to work on, especially as you come up to a book launch. But it also really pays dividends to to interact individually with your readers through social media, through email um, and other platforms. And it's definitely, you know, I don't know that a lot of authors think about it. They don't necessarily 
you know, they considered an important part of marketing, but I, I really absolutely think that it is. No, I think you're absolutely right, Gwen. And these days, there's the capability and there's the need to develop a following. And I think someone wrote a book called A Thousand True Followers, just arguing that an author can build a career on a thousand people who really love their work. And I think it's, uh, and you know, for somebody like yourself with many more than that, I think it's it's such a valuable asset that, you know, any publisher would be very excited to get access to or the, or gives you the option like you've done in the past of self-publishing. And so it gives you, it gives the author a lot more freedom if they've got that group that they can rely on that values their work. Absolutely. And, and again, you also want people, and, and this is the, the, the part of me that, that is a marketer, what you want are people not just who are buying your books. You want them to buy it as gifts for others. You want them to tell their friends to buy it. You want at the holiday season, they buy two, three, five extra copies to get to other people. And again, you know, to your point, a thousand true followers that you can build a career on. It's never just a thousand sales. It, you know, these, these are, these are going to be your product evangelists who talk about you to their friends and where they go and who do a lot of your sales and marketing work for you. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, last question, any, you know, you've had a number of different kinds of publishing experiences. You're with a small press. Now you were with a big press. You did some self-publishing. Any advice for the publishing community? <laughs> you mean in terms of like, like, which do I think is best or, or do I, do I think people should try them all or, uh, Oh, oh well, I, you know, anything you want to say is fine, but I was thinking in terms of what we publishers could do better. Oh, that is an interesting question. Look, I, my feeling is always that there should be a little more emphasis. I mean, not even just on PR, but on marketing. Uh, candidly, that is a place where I, I, I feel, yeah, I, I mean, just on the marketing efforts, I see a lot of authors and, and certainly not just me. There are things that authors do that blow me away that I would never have thought of. Um, and, and those are everything from best-selling authors to, to small and scrappy independent authors, but who do really brilliant and innovative things that I myself as an author find myself adopting, I think, you know, I, th I think that the publishing as a whole could do the same. You know, there, there's a lot of, of encouraging authors to do this on their behalf, but, you know, publishers also have a lot of big tools. They, they can help authors go further. I think that, you know, there, there's still a lot of traditional emphasis. There's a lot of emphasis on the traditional things that are obviously crucial for a book that only a publisher can do. That's getting your book in the bookstores. That's, you know, getting reviews from, from major publications. And those are all really important. Right. I think where a lot of publishers that, you know, just like I was just talking to authors, you want to keep your eye on sort of the things that hit a lot of people at once. And also on the individual level, I think publishers could, could do that too. I see a lot of publishers that are present on social media and they have portals on online but the truth is, you know, readers aren't loyal to a publishing brand. They're loyal to authors. And so where I feel that publishers, it's great that publishers build platforms where you can sign up to find out about all the new books that's that are coming out from XYZ off, you know, publisher in the fall. But I think it's something that they, you know, they could help their, I think publishers are in a position to help their individual authors go further with a little bit of el elbow grease in that direction uh, because they're smarter, they have more institutional knowledge, they have more resources, they've been doing it longer. And that is definitely something I, I think would increase everybody's bottom line, truthfully. No, I think those are valuable thoughts. I mean, one of the maybe unfortunate dynamics we have these days is 
you know, you have it exactly right. The authors are the ones that the readers are loyal to, not the publishers. And so as the author builds their platform, that platform is mobile with the author. So, you know, for a lot of publishers, I think there may be a little gun shy about investing too heavily in the author's platform, given that that author may jump to another publisher the next book. And so it's a little bit of a catch-22 there. Well, you know, that, that, I, would, <laughs> that I would say from my perspective, I mean, as someone who's, who's been a marketer and, and so who's marketed, right, other people's products um, that were not mine and that hypothetically could be taken elsewhere. And, and also being an author who I, I have my own, you, you know, I have my own books that, that I can take with me. If you give people a reason to be loyal to you, they, they generally will be. I think if you are a publisher, you know, so, I mean, I think nothing from an author's perspective, nothing is going to make an author jump ship faster than feeling like I did it all myself. What do I even need this publisher for? Because I'm the one who wrote the book and I'm the one who did all the marketing and I'm the one. And that may not be true, but I, I've certainly heard that from a lot of other authors. Everybody wants to hedge their bets. You, you have to marshal your resources intelligently as a publisher with a number of different books coming out simultaneously, not just any one individual author's. But you don't want to leave authors with the feeling that if I fail, it's because the publisher didn't help me. And if I succeed, it's because I did it myself. Because in either case, that's a reason for an author to go someplace else. And well, I think that's well said. I think for no matter what your job is, whether you're an author or you're uh, you work with a publisher, you know, producing an author's books, whatever your job is, you should always go into it with the goal of making yourself indispensable. I mean, that's, that's, you know, as a person who's been who's like legitimately unemployable outside of being a writer, <laughs> I can tell you to a certainty that the best thing you can do for your own career longevity is to prove yourself indispensable. I never managed to hack it before I got into writing. So, but I saw other people do it and I'm told that it was very effective. No, I think that's very smart. And I, and I know, you know, for us, we work very hard to create an author experience that people want to come back to, you know, and marketing is part of that. And I think that's, that is why, you know, we, most of our authors, um, you know, very few authors who've done well with their first book don't come back to us for the second book. And I think it's, I think you're, I think many publishers maybe forget that or they're, they think of it as more transactional, but those long-term relationships, you know, you're absolutely right. That is the key to successful publishing over time. Yeah, I, you know, I think authors, uh, you know, I guess there's always the possibility that an author becomes successful and starts getting dazzled with huge, you know, offers from other publishers. But at the end of the day, everybody would like to, you know, just have that level of stability because it's one less thing to worry about. I think most authors are not looking for a reason to leave a publisher that's published their book. I think they're looking for reasons to stay, you know, and again, so what you don't want is to foster too much of a feeling of, of independence in them because that I think sort of decreases that, that feel that institutional loyalty that they would otherwise naturally build up. All right. Publishers, including myself, listen up. This is very good <laughs> advice. <laughs> All right, Gwen, tell us where we can find you online. Yes. Yeah, so my website is gwencooper.com online. If you're looking to find me, probably the best place would be somewhere in, in Homer's online community um, on Facebook. We're at Homer blind cat fans on Instagram and Twitter, we are at Homer Blind Cat. If you do just a Google search for Homer the Blind Wonder Cat, you're, you're probably bound to run into something that will eventually lead you back to me. Okay, wonderful. I will, right, well, Gwen, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I really appreciate our partnership. Well, thank you so much. It, it has been a pleasure speaking with you. All right, take care. 
Thank you for listening to the Building Books podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to it or share it on social media. If you're an author who wants to submit a proposal or pitch to Ben Bella Books, please go to benbellabooks.com, click on the Four Perspective Authors button, and I'll lead you through a little form that makes it real easy to submit to us. Thank you.